house. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. 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 Whoa. My neck is filled with the water. Hey. Hey. I might just fuck around and take your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy Jordan, and this is Desmond, and welcome to episode 191 of Two Black Nerds. That's right. It's that time once again for us to bring you our opinions and our takes on all things fandom, pop culture, and entertainment. As always, you can find Two Black Nerds wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a friendly rating and comment to show your support. And of course, join in on the conversation each and every week by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Two Black Nerds. We appreciate that love, y'all. And let's not forget to mention we have brand new merchandise that's available now at TwoBlackNerds.com. Go check out our Two Black Jedi and Sith collections inspired by Star Wars. We got t-shirts, crew necks, hoodie stickers, mugs, and tote bags. So go ahead and place those orders right now. On today's show, we'll be reviewing the return of the Netflix anthology series, Black Mirror. Also, we'll discuss season two of the FX drama, The Bear. Plus, we'll share our reactions to the controversial HBO original series, The Idol. But before we get to any and all of that, we're kicking off this week's podcast with a review of the fifth and final installment in the Indiana Jones franchise, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm retiring. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. We need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Helena! Dr. Jones, get him. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. This way! Fasten your seatbelt. There might be some tablets. You've taken your chances, made your mistakes, and now a final triumph. Indiana Jones. A few times in my life I've seen things. I've been tortured with voodoo. Been shot nine times. Including once by your father. Ah, sorry. But I've been looking for this all my life. Now, this film is directed by James Mangold, and it's written by Jess Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, David Kep, and James Mangold, and it's starring, starring Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Antonio Banderas, John Rhys-Davies, Toby Jones, Boyd Holbrook, 
Ethan Isidore and Mads Mikkelsen. So the Indiana Jones franchise uh, has to be said is it's one of the most beloved and well-established franchises really in all of Hollywood history. It's been celebrated for such a long time. Over 40 years ago, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, real life best friends, but also at that particular time, pretty much two of the most powerful filmmakers in the industry decided to team up together to make Raiders of the Lost Ark. They were coming off of the heels of such successful films like Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They were on an incredible run. And so they decided to join forces to create this new franchise that was inspired by the serials of the 30s and 40s that they grew up watching. Of course, that film was starring Harrison Ford, who was on the ascent to becoming one of the biggest movie stars in the world at that particular time. And then it spawned three other sequels, and throughout the 80s, again, the Indiana Jones franchise had long been considered one of the greatest film trilogies of all time. That that isn't until 2008 when they decided to release Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was 19 years after The Last Crusade. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas wanted to team up one last time to tell a final Indiana Jones adventure and story. Unfortunately, that movie's just not that great. It's a much maligned sequel. I don't particularly like it. Mm-hmm. It definitely went a little bit too far and over the top, I think, for what people were expecting out of an Indiana Jones story. And so in these subsequent 15 years, since the release of that movie, the idea of making one last Indiana Jones installment had pretty much always been on the table. Disney and Lucasfilm, um, or excuse me, Disney acquired Lucasfilm back in 2012 and decided to make another Indiana Jones movie. And also Harrison Ford himself talked about wanting to create a little bit more closure for the character because he was not completely satisfied with what they did with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull back in an 08. So with all of that context out the way, let's go ahead and t- talk about this movie. And I'll pass it over to you, man. What did you think about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? What a beloved franchise in Indiana Jones, man. You already said it, but I can't believe here in the year 2023 <laughs> that we were reviewing an Indiana Jones movie. It really is just kind of crazy to conceptualize and to think about but indiana jones really has been still a mainstay for such a long period of time i know we we go to like universal studios and disney places and things like that indiana jones is always present in fact i remember uh, at uh, hollywood studios there's still like a whole indiana jones like thing that they do and they give they show you live action uh, uh, how the effects are and how things work with 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 uh stunts and stunt doubles and things like that so it's kind of crazy that this franchise in in the character even of Indiana Jones has been here for so long, man. And I think, you know, coming into this film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, one of the things I really like about this film, I have to put take that with a grain of salt. This is something that I, something about the film that I really like, is um some of the fan service they do in the movie is kind of cool to me. There's some some callbacks to some uh, uh the original Indiana Jones um trilogy a lot of the times and a lot of times when they were doing that in the film i was like huh i didn't mind that i enjoyed some of the fan servicey things going on there i'll I'll also start by saying that indiana jones i think uh uh has always played well off of adventures and one of the things that doesn't work i think as well in this uh film is how i think the adventure plays out it's not as I guess maybe thrilling is the word. I don't know what the word is. It's not as fun as some of the other older Indiana Jones movies are. And to be honest, part of it is the the fatigue I felt while watching the film. This movie has, it's so long. It is so long. What is it? Two, it's shitting at 2.30 something. 
it's like 224 is what this movie sits at. A lot of the other Indiana Jones films, I know the first two in particular, sit like right under two, like 159 or something like that, 158. And it's something that in the middle of it, I was like, wow, we are still going here in Indiana Jones. It really can be an exhausting movie to watch, especially, again, when a lot of it is adventure. So that's something that took away from the film for me a little bit. Another thing that took away from the film for me a little bit, to be honest, is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character. Uh, I think the inclusion of her just doesn't work for me completely. It took away, I think, for the reason a lot of us are there in Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is known to have a lot of companions in his adventures, right? It's something here where it felt like there was too much Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It was too much of her character and not enough of just give us the Indiana that we know and love. In fact, in a lot of this film, uh, uh, again, the parts I do like is when Harrison Ford is being his natural charismatic self. Um, a lot of the times I was like, okay, I'm, I'm here for this. But then it goes to Phoebe Waller-Bridge and the story between the, their two characters is when they, they kept losing me um, and, and what was going on because she's not even one of the, like a classic character, you know what I mean? She's not even one of the people that they were giving fan service for. She really was just there to help prepare the story and help prepare, give Indiana Jones reason to do what he was doing. And and it just didn't always work for me. Um, a couple other things I add. At the beginning of the film, there is a really long sequence, which I actually like the sequence. I, did, I didn't mind. The, it's a big flashback. The CGI, I don't know why we decided to, I don't know. I just don't know what direction we decided to go in completely. Uh, but they, they, they pretty much de-aged Harrison Ford, which I like the concept. There's a couple times where the de-aging worked. It usually happened when it was dark, though. When it was dark, it was like, okay, that looks really good. Unfortunately, they decided multiple times to keep putting the de-aged Harrison Ford in the light. And so instead of really focusing what's happening in the film, you're just like, what are what is this de-aged Harrison Ford doing? I don't know. It just I was thinking about that more than I was thinking about the adventure that Indiana Jones had going on. And so that, that was happening throughout the beginning of the film. There was other couple flashbacks where they did show de-aged Harrison Ford. So it happened a couple other times. But really, it was in the beginning. I was, it was up and down for me. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And it was, again, it was, it was, it was, it was making a, a mixed bag of emotions for me at the beginning of the movie. Because I think in the grand scheme of what they're trying to do, it does look good. But when you throw into a feature-length movie and people whose eyes are constantly focusing on something, it can throw you at the movie uh, uh, a numerous amount of times, man. And so, all in all, it's a fine Indiana Jones movie. It's not great. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. It's an okay watch. It's too long. Uh, I, I I wish Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, I, didn't, I wish there was a little bit less of her. Um, and yeah, man, it's just okay. Uh, there's it. I don't mind this being the last Indiana Jones movie. I'm like, okay, we, we hung up the hat. Let's keep it hung up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and get out of here because, again, Harrison Ford is getting old. It feels like a last adventure. It feels like a wrap-up, and I'm okay with that, man. So let's just end it here, and it's fine. And I think uh, at, at some point in time, uh, uh, I think when this is on streaming, it might do decent numbers because it is long. I think people will have a chance to say, I'm going to break this up, <laughs> or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and, and, and come back to it. But overall, uh, uh, still a little bit disappointing for me, again, coming from James Mangold, who I was really excited to see his take on this franchise uh but not a not a bad movie not a bad movie 
So I should also mention that this is the first film in the franchise to not be directed by Steven Spielberg, the last one that he directed, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Again, as I said, uh, a very much detestable movie by most considerations, but I do think that the one key difference between Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and now the Dial of of Destiny is the fact that you still had Steven Spielberg. You still had one of the most talented and celebrated and greatest film directors ever behind the camera of that movie. And as wild and as over the top as it got in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I mean, we're talking about flying monkeys. We're talking about Harrison Ford getting in refrigerators and surviving atomic bomb explosions. Like, it was stupid. It, it, it honestly gotten stupid. But you still had a certain element of joy mm. to the Indiana Jones adventure that you were watching. And I think that my biggest criticism about The Dial of Destiny a movie that I don't really enjoy all that much, though it is fine, is the fact that it lacks a lot of the joy that we've come to associate with the Indiana, Indiana Jones franchise for over 40 years now. I just didn't have that much fun watching the movie. Many of the sequences that were taking place were cool, and they were well-crafted, and I don't I don't deny the, the technical craftsmanship that went behind them because there had to be a lot of artistry and technical work on display here to bring these really big bombastic sequences to life because we do come to an indiana jones film for the adventure and for the action sequences and so that stuff was 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 crafted in a, in a really believable way for the most part but i never got that sense of joy and that sense of buoyancy that you got out of, out of those original three films in particular because the place that we find indy in this movie is is very different than how it used to be because this is an aging indie this movie takes place in 1960 which is about 12 years after the last movie and he's in about his 70s and Harrison Ford when he filmed this movie was about 78 now he's 80 we're watching a man who is obviously on the last stretch of his life he's dealing with a lot of regret he's dealing with a lot of things that he probably wish he could have done differently and he's also dealing with an evolved world around him and all of that stuff kind of makes sense but I don't know if I totally believe it I'll just quickly point out one scene in this movie it's not a spoiler but just something that I think really illustrates where I'm coming from But you see Harrison Ford, as we do in other films in the franchise, teaching a class. He's teaching, you know, his 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 academic class. It's 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 an archaeological class in college. And none of the kids are at all interested. They're all very disengaged. They're falling asleep. They don't want to be there. At this point in history, they're more interested in the moon landing. And while on the surface, that might seem like something that makes sense. I don't believe that, one, Indiana Jones would be teaching a class where the kids aren't interested. And two, if there are kids that are in a class taught by Dr. Henry Jones, I don't believe that they would be disengaged and disinterested. I would believe that they would actually want to be there and they would be passionate and interested. And so from the very get-go, there were just a lot of things that sort of strained credulity for me. And so it was hard to buy into just the, the entire adventure to begin with. That doesn't mean that the film isn't without its benefits and without its pluses. There are a few things I liked. You already noted the the opening sort of 20-minute flashback sequence, which I, th- I thought, by and large, was executed really well, but I do agree about the CGI and the de-aging. Somehow we've gotten worse with this. Like, it's just not working because you watch a movie like Captain Marvel and you see Samuel L. Jackson, and it's like, that, that looks really good. And then you mm-hmm. come here and it's just not working. And I don't know if it's maybe just the age gap because we're – we're trying to pick up a Harrison Ford who's, you know, sort of in his 40s in that sequence, but he's in real life approaching 80. Maybe it's just the time gap. I don't know what it is, but it just wasn't all that convincing to me. And then when you go even beyond that with some of like the technical stuff, I think that a lot of the CGI that's utilized in this film 
it, it, they, they, they rely far too heavily on it. The Indiana Jones franchise has been known for its practicality. It's been known for its real stunts, its stunt doubles, just all of the stuff that is super believable on screen. And this movie just doesn't look that great all the time because they employ so much CGI technology. Mm-hmm. And that just ripped me out of the film at, at, at many different points in time. Um, one last like positive note that I will attribute to this film is something that's consistent with the entire franchise. The final acts of Indiana Jones movies always take super big swings. They always yeah. go in these crazy directions. Yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark, you got Nazis' faces melting crazy. when they find the Ark <laughs> of the Covenant. It, it's a crazy sequence. Temple of Doom, you have this trial war, warrior ripping somebody's heart out of, out of a man's chest. That's a crazy scene. Last Crusade, there's ghosts and spirits and all these different things, right? Mm-hmm. Even Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, again, it's over the top, but you get aliens. You get aliens at the end of that movie, and it's like, well, that was unexpected. And I do think that they continue that trend here. There is a really cool final act action sequence and and it leans into the title of this movie and just the idea behind the MacGuffin, this this time travel sort of device and i thought that that was really surprising and really cool i think unfortunately by the end of it i didn't feel this overwhelming sense of finality to the character or to the franchise because the reason they came back here to begin with is to tell a final indiana jones adventure and when you look at the kingdom of the crystal skull and the ending of that movie that feels more I don't know, perfunctory for the character than this one does. Like, I I didn't feel all those emotions that I thought I would feel like this feels like that closure for Indy that we wanted and that we needed for all of these years. I didn't get that feeling by the end of it. There is a nice callback. They do bring back some characters that that remind you of those earlier films, but it didn't really punctuate the point home for me. It didn't underscore why this film had to exist to begin with. Like, I understand that they didn't feel satisfied based off of Mm -hmm. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but... I just don't feel that the ending and just the story that it took us to get there really justified the existence of the movie because I think that all in all, for all of its faults, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull kind of left the character off in a better place than this one did. And that's really unfortunate and tragic Mm. because you want to see why they would come back and you would want to see why they would actually go back to the well and tell the story one last time. And so that's kind of where I am with the movie. It's something that I don't know how many more times I'll revisit in the future. It is fine. I think it's okay. It's slightly better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but I don't think significantly, which is, again, sort of an unfortunate standpoint to look at it from based off of how long we had to wait to arrive at this point. But folks, those are all of our thoughts on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. If you've checked out this movie, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition to talking about a few TV shows. First up, we're going to catch up with the return of the Netflix anthology series, Black Mirror. You want to watch? Can't really do another true crime. What about? Oh my God. She even has your hair. The first question any platform is going to ask is, what's the hook? First step is to recognize that you're not in control of this. That's Salma Hayek? Bingo. How's the coffee? Dog shit. I did not say that like that. This is an adaptation of Joan's life. Can everybody that has Streamberry watch this? That's what your documentary is about. The details are so awful, it is irresistible. <gasps> I love it. Two years down on the mission, the man is lost. And we both feel that you could use a break. I think I'd like that very much. Did 
She got kicked off the movie set weeks ago. Nick's offering 30K for the first photo of her. Half of these assholes would kill themselves if we didn't take their picture. Miss Day? This way, you stink! Fancy writing down your number, I won't mind. I'm a crazy person. You look crazy. I'm a murderer. You're your crazy one. It has taken you over. And you must be humble in the face of it. Things they can do. You not seen Joan is awful? No, but it's on my list. Now, this series is created by Charlie Brooker. All episodes are currently streaming on Netflix, and it's obviously starring an ensemble cast. And I think quickly to just sort of talk about Black Mirror. This has become one of Netflix's sort of premier franchises, one of its most popular shows. Black Mirror originally started Mm -hmm. as a science fiction series through um, a British television network, Channel 4, before they eventually made their way to Netflix. Um, I believe back in 2011 is when they first started to premiere on Netflix and the episodes were licensed out to the company. And then eventually Netflix sort of purchased the rights to produce future iterations and future seasons of the series. And ever since then, it's really blown up. It is an anthology series, very much inspired by what we saw out of the Twilight Zone back in the 60s, telling these individual standalone episodes. And a lot of the episodes sort of focus on dystopian elements, unhappy endings, science fiction, technology, futuristic worlds, all that stuff is kind of really the focal point of Black Mirror. And I think we've seen some really, really excellent episodes of Black Mirror, especially at the height of the popularity of the series, probably between that 2016 and 2017 era. And we've also gotten some not so great episodes. That's just kind of the nature of anthology series as you would get them. But it's been four years since the last Black Mirror series uh, back in 2019. That one wasn't that well received. I think a lot of people came out of that one thinking, okay, this left a lot to be desired. But we are now coming back here in 2023 with five brand new installments to the Black Mirror franchise. And so I know you still have to catch up with a few of the episodes, but I just kind of want to start and talk about, you know, your thoughts about Black Mirror Mirror as, as as a whole, your relationship to it. And so far out of what you've seen, what do you think about this new interpretation and new series thus far? Man, I absolutely love Black Mirror, man. I think it came and premiered at a time that made sense for the state of the world, right? The concept that every Black Mirror episode would ingest and its DNA would would contain something having to do with technology. (laughs) Usually uh, it, it, it would not turn out for the better or usually it would just create a world that was different from the world we were in but not too far off and definitely possible for the most part from the world we're in. I absolutely love that idea. Also the idea that when your phone is off, it serves as a black mirror. I love that idea too. That whole concept I think is really cool as, as well as the magic uh, idea of, of black mirrors and all of that and so on and so forth. So coming into black mirror, man, I was like, Oh, is this what this TV show is? Of course, a lot of us are watching season one. We kind of hear about it late season one, you know, not necessarily at the beginning of season one. Right. Cause like you said, it was on a different uh, platform. So I'll, everybody kind of got to black mirror a little bit late for the most part, the masses did. But when we all figure out what's going on, everyone's like, Oh man, this is great. 
but not only is it great, it can be depressing. And I think that's the scariest thing about Black Mirror for a lot of us is how close it really is to being real, how close this technology is to happening, how an episode like I forgot the, the name of it, but the one where you can reverse memories and look at each other's memories and find out somebody's cheating on you <laughs> and stuff. I'm, it's not that far off. And I think that is also the intrigue of the show is we, a lot of us click the next episode and, and go, OK, but what other ideas do you have for this technology? What could be next? What did what 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 other crazy thing could happen? Not only that, another, one other thing I have to say I really like a Black Mirror about Black Mirror is they don't only play with horror; they play with love stories like San Junipero, one of the you know more popular episodes. They play with horror. They play with really any and everything under the sun, even some action stuff. I know you're not a big fan of uh, what is it, Bandersnatch? Isn't that Black Mirror? No, I know you're not a big fan of Bandersnatch, but it's still a swing. You know what I mean? Of something. That is uh, an idea, a different idea. Um, and so I, I like the experiments that comes with Black Mirror, man. And, and, and I think coming into this season, it's pretty much the same thing. And I think I think what's interesting about this season of Black Mirror is uh, season six sounds like a lot, but it, it feels like not into, until now, in this moment of season six, do I feel like, one, the depression is really getting to people. I heard somebody say I could only watch two episodes or something like that because they were like, yeah, I, it's too much. It's too much. And I think I think it has to do with all of the artificial intelligence stuff we're hearing in in the in the, in the media right now, um in in the news, uh, all the other technological advancements that we're hearing happen in the news and now that we've 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 kind of caught up to Black Mirror, technically not 100% technology-wise, but the idea of Black Mirror and we're all accustomed to the idea. I think it's getting more scary for a lot of people. Um and so I think I think by that same token, though, it's becoming less and less surprising when a when a new episode happens. It's becoming a little less jarring when a new Black Mirror episode comes on because you're like now you're like mm, I could kind of see that coming as an as a concept or as an idea, and that's kind of what what I'm I'm feeling now um, out of Black Mirror, man. So yeah, it's 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 a weird spot to be in, but. Uh, I'm still going to enjoy the content. I'm still I'm still going to enjoy the the concept of Black Mirror and these new te- technological episodes. But I absolutely understand, and I'm also being keen to uh, the new ideas that they're coming out with, episode to episode. And so I, but there there are seasons of of Black Mirror that are going to be better than others. But this one tends to feel I think a little more wishy washy because of like the the nature of I think it's getting harder to tell Black Mirror episodes because of everything I just said. Yeah, those are really good points, um, just due to the fact that some of this stuff does start to feel alarmingly close to reality and the things that we deal with on a daily basis. And in particular, this new season starts to play with a lot of those ideas. And I guess just like in terms of my overall thoughts, the series so far has been really enjoyable and really entertaining. And it does get you to contemplate and think about a lot of these concepts and some of the things that might be cautionary tales versus like actual realities that we might already be living in. And if you just end up with something happening to be in the, in the wrong person's hands, it might just come to fruition, you know, one of these days. And so that, that kind of exists on that, 
that really um, that really close proximity to just like what we deal with emotionally every day. But with this new season in particular, I don't know if I was necessarily excited because that last season was pretty disappointing for me. It didn't really add anything all that new to the formula of what we've come to know out of Black Mirror. But I was still interested and I did still want to check out just like what the what the new concepts and what the new thematic things that they were going to sort of explore and talk about. Um, I'll quickly just kind of run through, you know, each of these episodes B by B. But I know we can talk about Joan is Awful as like the premiere episode um, that a lot of people are talking about. But with Locke Henry, which is the second episode, it was mo- mostly mm-hmm. spent on discussing just the idea behind I think this meta commentary with true crime documentaries and the fact that people tend to capitalize off of real life tragedies and I found this episode to be super interesting just because that also exists as like a real life thing and I think that this Mm -hmm. is probably the most grounded episode out of the new pack and it is a little bit slower a little bit more quiet I think compared to some of the other um, other stories that we got this season but I did like it for the fact that again like we're in this real big true crime phase of just like pop culture now where we're examining these real life scenarios and at what cost you know does it become to our enjoyment where we're watching like somebody's life just really unfold before our very eyes and also also just like denigrate itself to a point where we're getting enjoyment out of people suffering and I think that this episode in particular had some pretty good commentary on that I did really enjoy Beyond the Sea. That episode has Aaron Paul and also Josh Hartnett, mm-hmm. who is in the midst of like a renaissance. Josh yeah. Hartnett is like really coming back in a big way. Yeah. And I love that um, mm-hmm. for him. He's going to be an Oppenheimer in a few weeks as well. And I really, really enjoyed this episode. This was a really kind of just, I think just a really damning episode in terms of like what it means to just not exist within yourself and just the consequences of that of being absent. And, and, mm-hmm. and it takes a really high sci-fi concept and, 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 it, and applies it to just like this real, this real couple, this real married couple and, and, and how that just impacts them. Just the fact that they've, they've been absent from one another. And then there's an episode like demon 79, which I really enjoyed. Won't get into that specifically, but it's basically about this person who's living this super ordinary life and a demon comes into her life and basically tells her, you have to kill three people to prevent the apocalypse. And it's like, well, what the hell? That just upends their entire day. And this person that has to carry out these murderous acts, they are not at all like that. That is not in their DNA <laughs> at all. That It's actually a stretch for them to have to go to that place. Um, my, my least favorite out of the pack is Maisie Day, um, which, which is unfortunate because I was somewhat looking forward to that one, but that one just didn't really... I don't know. I think it went too far into the supernatural. It, it, it does incorporate a lot of supernatural elements. It's also the shortest episode, but um, it's really examining paparazzi culture. And and while that can be interesting, I just feel like paparazzi culture isn't as relevant to maybe some of these other topics that we're exploring. Because like paparazzi, while they're still a thing, that felt like a, a relic of 90s culture. So mm-hmm. it almost kind of felt like we were going backwards. And Zazie Beach, she's like the lead star. She's fine in it. But I think the episode just kind of goes a little bit too far beyond its concept by the end of it. Um, but that brings us to Joan is Awful, which I know a lot of people have seen. That's sort of the leadoff episode for this season. Yep. And it stars, you know, a, a lot of very notable people, most notably Selma Hayek. Also, Annie Murphy is kind of the lead of the episode as well. And this is examining, I think, things that we talk about all the time, whether it's AI or deepfake te- technology or streaming it all together mm-hmm. or just, you know, the idea of licensing out your rights and, and just your life and, and who can use that information and who can, you know, sort of employ that to, to do whatever they want. And so this is, again, sort of another cautionary tale but um with my thoughts with the rest of the episodes out of the way i do want to you know sort of kind of explore your thoughts and get, get your reaction to jonah's awful and how do you feel, feel about the episode man jonah's awful is like like you said i love I, I really do like the meta commentary on it um i love the fact that they used annie murphy too like somebody who is just 
she she is in like a such an interesting spot i think right now in her career where she's not super a-listy but she is emmy award-winning slash <laughs> uh a, a decently well-known face uh, uh nowadays in annie murphy and, and so i love how they they kind of insert her in in the middle of things uh uh again not to spoil it too much but she's like quite literally in the middle um of these levels and of of um uh, of this episode and it works out perfectly it's funny because it 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 really is commentary on itself within the episode but this is i think i think jonah's awful is a good example of being self-aware and having commentary on yourself but you kind of get it um, and it just works out and it really is just inception of, of inception of inception but I liked it um, because of that not only that but it, it was pretty surprising for me how involved Selma Hayek was in this episode it was very surprising for me I absolutely love um, that concept of of, of, of uh, her being here as well man but uh, not only that I love the I think the realism of this episode right where Jonah's awful is is literally supposed to be about this normal woman <laughs> who is just working she has to fire somebody and now her life is in real time on i forgot what it was called in the episode but pretty much netflix her her, her life is in real time on netflix and it's something about that that feels so weird and so crazy and it's easy to put your yourself in those shoes though too to think about okay what would happen if that was happening to me what if i did something i was doing some stuff that was quote unquote questionable to other people who are watching a TV show of me or and, and what would that look like? And so it I that that did kind of become the horror part of it. Um but I also what I do like about it is the what what's important about the episode too, I think, is the fight to dismantle these ideas that exists within what was happening in the episode between AI, between like you said, people buying likeness and being able to do whatever they want with it between it's not just commentary for the second commentary. It's like, should we be doing this? It's like a big question mark <laughs> at the end of the sentence of Jonah's awful. Like, should we be doing this? Because, you know, there are examples, real life examples of this happening already, man. So I enjoyed um, um, Jonah's awful. Not a perfect episode by any means, but I think the ideas and the points that they were trying to hit in the episode were 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 actually very much worth talking about and i think it's something we'll be talking about um here for a while yeah i think that this is definitely the most quote-unquote classic episode of black mirror this is the one that feels like it's most akin to what we've seen out of the series so far and i really like the concept and the idea behind it for sure i think that they actually do tackle some really interesting stuff again just that whole idea of like personalized content even we know that netflix is very much leaned into that because of their really pioneering of the streaming platform and, and, and of the technology, just the idea that everything is sort of delivered to you on a silver platter because it is what you like. And so they're just going to consistently feed you the stuff that you like. And this show sort of takes place, you know, within that sort of concept and idea, but then it takes it to a whole nother level because now Joan as a character is not even like the main character in her own, her own story anymore. She becomes like a side character and almost a standby viewer of, of everything mm -hmm. unfolding. And she just has no control of it. And just the idea of losing control, and not really making your own choices like it can go into those deep levels for sure um ultimately the episode was just fine for me i just think because i didn't feel that the actual content of the story and the episode itself went any deeper beyond the, the premise i think for a lot of it became it became a little bit repetitive for me where you just kind of see like mm -hmm. this 
constant like, oh yeah, this is actually not the story, and then this is not the story, and then we're just going to go deeper and deeper and deeper and show all these different layers, um, which again is like interesting and exciting at first, but I don't necessarily feel like it went much deeper beyond that. And, and, and at some points, it kind of felt a little bit on the nose as well. It felt like that they were just tackling something that I think is super obvious to many people, and it's not necessarily all that deep and contemplative. It's really just kind of examining what we already know to be true, mm-hmm. um, which is fine, but maybe it would have been a little bit more impactful if this episode came out like four or five years ago or maybe mm. even like six or seven years ago i think yeah. that we could have been like thinking about the future now like streaming is the norm it is in our in our lives so much and just the idea of like not having control i think people very much recognize this like even mm. when you just you know put your phone away and a personalized ad comes up after you talk about something like we all know what that means it represents now and they kind of even name check that idea so it was cool but i think as a pack this was overall a pretty good balanced collection of episodes i think mm-hmm. that this is definitely a step up from the previous season and i do think that there's more stories that they can tell in the future mm-hmm. black mirror can go for as long as they can come up with these original and inventive stories um just as long as they continue to be interesting i think that that's really going to be the determining factor as to whether or not it's going to maintain its popularity over the years but folks those are all of our thoughts on season six of black mirror if you've checked out the new collection of episodes on netflix definitely hit us up and let us know what you think And with that being said, we're going to transition and talk about another series that just recently returned, the FX original drama, The Bear. This is coming from a place of wanting to start fresh and clean. This is going to be a destination spot. We drafted a quick term sheet. We need more money. Will you turn that thing off, please? How's that not making you insane? I don't mind it. It's a facelift. It's not a gun. Bear, it is a facelift and a gun. It's it's gonna take six months to open. Six months? That's being what? Confident? Cocky. Crazy. Still thinking chaos menu? Yeah, chaos menu, but um, thoughtful. Oh, gross. We need like a reset. I'm trying to start from a place of positivity. Clock is ticking. We're gonna be sending you to a culinary school. A hell of a lot of siblings in here. Don't look them in the eyes. Ideally, we need five days on. Yeah, I just can't do Fridays or Saturdays. When can I talk to the chef? You are. Oh. Oh! Don't freak out and go calling for mom. Mom! I'm gonna call you. Call mom. Call mom. 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 She can't hear you. Mom! That's my love. I'm the supervisor. Supervisor what? I need a chance, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. You got this, baby. Yes, chef. So how's your life been, Brazado? Opening a restaurant. Gotta go hard every day. Gotta control the zone. I still, I, I love the name. You don't remember the name. Of course I remember the name. We didn't even tell anybody you the name. You 100% told me the name. How could you remember the name? Your shirt says original birth. Yeah, it's a pretty mistake. Collector's item. Now, this series is created by Christopher Storr and is starring Jeremy Allen White, Eben Moss Bachrock, Io Ediberi, Lionel Boyce, Lisa Colon Zayas, Abby Elliott, and Maddie Matheson. So, 
The Bear Season 1 premiered in the summer of last year. All episodes were made available at the same time, and most of them were made available instantly on Hulu as well. And it pretty much became sort of an overnight phenomenon, an overnight sensation. Many people just discovered the show due to the word-of-mouth nature of it. I think many people saw the conversations that were happening on Twitter or Instagram or wherever else and decided, let's check this out because this is a new series and it starred mostly unknowns. There was only really one person a part of that first season who people might have recognized, and that was John Bernthal, Mm -hmm. who was not even necessarily a main character. He was sort of a character that loomed in the background. But again, it became one of the best-reviewed series of 2022, and it was one of the most celebrated series of last year. I know it ended up in both of our top 10 lists of last year as well, and so very much was excited and eager to check out Season 2 of The Bear, and also equally as excited that they decided to drop all the episodes once again at once, Mm -hmm. but this time they expanded from 8 to 10 episodes with Season 2. And there's also quite a few new guest stars who popped up in this brand new season of The Bear, largely probably due to the fact that Season 1 was so well-received. But with all of that out the way, I will pass it over to you, man. What do you think so far about what you seen out of the bear season two what a i think good work of character driven stories and development man it's something about the bear that other tv shows i feel like really just aren't doing right now i think a lot of other tv shows harp on the skeptical of what the show is of what the show is supposed to be or they harp on the the or other shows harp on what uh uh I don't know just too much of the bigger picture of what they're supposed to be but the bear is so amazingly character driven and they give each of their characters something to do and to chew on one of my favorite anime right now is called haiku it's literally a volleyball anime and what makes it so good is the realism in which characters progress in that anime. And what makes the bear so good is I feel like they're giving that same attention to detail to their characters. I feel like every character has very very clearly some a problem they're presented with. You know what they're good at. You know what they're bad at. And the show takes the time to say, okay, let's show you their story and what they're doing next. Right. I absolutely love that about the show. Very simple example is there's pretty, almost a whole episode, at least a good chunk of an episode dedicated to Marcus. Right. Where he's trying to learn desserts overseas somewhere. And you're just like, well, yeah, of course he would do that. And, it, and it's not like everybody's getting better or made to get better for some random reason. It's like, no, we're trying to make this a fine dining establishment. How do we take our, our employees that we have now and elevate them? And I love that as a as a device to move this season forward. I, it just it just makes sense, and it feels good when you're watching it because you, we have bought into these characters. We are rooting for these characters. We're rooting for the restaurant that we want this restaurant to be. And so every episode, you're like, "What's going to happen?" And what I like about it is, I feel like it's moving in real time. And when I say that, I mean like, I don't feel like we're rushing anything. I don't feel like we're moving too fast. I don't feel like we blinked. And now the restaurant is up and running. You know what I mean? And you're just like, dang, we're, 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 we're cruising on this thing. Instead, they're like, no, we're going to take you down the path. We need you to be patient and to show every character how they're going to get better in every in every small step, how their relationships are with each other, how their relationships are with mothers and fathers and, and significant others in potential love interests. I just really like 
the patience that the bear has, man, and the way that it treats his characters. It just feels, again, different than a lot of the other shows that we have. A, a lot of the other shows are great, don't get me wrong. I love those other shows, but again, a lot of them are harping on uh, uh, the spectacle of the show, the, the the reason you're supposed to be afraid, not necessarily the reason in which you're supposed to root for a lot of the characters in, in, in the bear. You're rooting for like everybody in the show, and I really like that. Uh, it, it really feels, it, it feels good. I don't know, because I think we've all been in the places of the characters in the bear. We've all been somewhere where we all need to grow for some reason or we love something and we're like, let's take this to the next level. What does that look like? It's not going to be as easy as you think it is. And so, man, the bear, the writing is tremendous. I love the acting is tremendous. Iowa Berry, I don't need y'all to understand. This is She's one of my favorites right now, easily. And I don't know what it is about her, but she's a really good actress and she brings a lot of heart to all of the roles she's been playing recently. And I'm, I'm excited to see any and everything that she does, man. But this cast has just been fire. They really took season one and they said, okay, let's up it a little bit. Let's 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 take these characters and be be uh, uh intentional about them. Let's let's be mean let's have a meaningful conversation between the story uh of this man. So I I, I think it's great. I think um, I, I, I can't wait to see more of the Bear Man, but I think they're doing a tremendous job. And I think already, again, right now in the back of my head, I think it's just going to make my top 10 again. That's how much I'm enjoying myself, uh, but we'll have to see. But for now, man, the Bear, they're doing it. It's a fantastic show, uh, really, in all regards. That, that, that first season was just such an explosive uh, season of television. And, and watching it, it often felt like they were having – a war amongst the characters within the kitchen. You know, that, that that was kind of just like the whole tone and thematic sort of premise of the first season. Everybody was just sort of battling each other. A lot of the characters didn't trust each other. All of that had to be established with just all of the dialogue and interactions that we saw. This one, to sort of, you know, expand on your point about everybody going off to hone their craft, become even better, it reminded me of like a sports drama, like a team that comes together right. that's trying to like figure out the best way to win. And so they have to go increase and elevate their skills and as you said there's a lot of standalone episodes with marcus and even with others later on in the season with richie as well mm -hmm. probably in my favorite episode of the season in episode seven but you have a lot of these characters who have to just go off and learn these new skills to become even better cooks better chefs than they originally were because now the stakes have risen they have to make sure that everything that they deliver is going to be of a plus quality because they can't afford anything else like this mm -hmm. is all of their livelihoods on the line, so you, you you certainly get those stakes that are maintained throughout the season. And and really what I even love more is the fact that, yes, Jeremy Allen White is the main character, and we do continue to follow him, and just like how he has grown and developed as a character, and we start to see him sort of mature and become more of the leader in this space as well, but also know how to concede power when necessary. But we get to see all the, the, the exploration, you know, really come to life with, with many of these other characters. And you get to see those supporting players really step up and do a lot of work and get to know more about them, where they come from, why they are the way that they are. And it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the characters here and just their relationships with each other. And I think that all of that stuff is just done so in, in such an incredible way because the writing here is just so, it's so flawless that, there's many scenes I'm watching the show where I don't even feel like people are acting. I'm right. just like watching them have conversations. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they're really long takes or there's these extreme close ups to really 
illustrate and enunciate how their emotions are coming across in that particular moment. And I just don't feel like I'm actually watching actors. It feels like I'm watching real people Mm -hmm. and I'm just seeing how their relationships unfold. So this was a spectacular, another spectacular season of television. I think that it's certainly on par with the first season, but what I do love the most about it is how different it feels. It doesn't just try to replicate the success or the tone of what they did in season one. It goes for a whole different aesthetic, even though it's within the confines of this really high pressure situation, this high pressure restaurant world and, and, and the culinary arts, like all of that stuff has so much behind it and so many detractors and so many critics and cynicism that, that are, you know, sort of really infused within the show. It still takes a different approach and, 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 and explores the characters in a new way. I do want to just talk about quickly sort of the additions to this, this season of The Bear. And, and so if you don't want to know anything about the show, if you don't want to be spoiled by any appearances or guest stars, I would encourage you to, you know, maybe hold off on the rest of this conversation and come back later. But because of the success of season one, mm-hmm. I think a lot of actors were like, well, damn, we want to be a part of that. We want to come play with the bear and be a part of this cast. And I think the standout episode of this season is episode six, which is essentially a Christmas episode. It's entitled Fishes, and it brings in just a litany of heavyweights from across the both TV and cinematic worlds. You have Sarah Paulson coming in here. You have Bob Odenkirk, Jamie Lee Curtis pops up, John Mulaney. Like, there's just so much incredible talent. And that's just within that episode. There are also other people that pop up throughout the season as well. But what, what, what did you think when you first turned on that episode and you just saw all of these really incredibly talented people making up the rest of the Brazado family because they're all essentially extended members. You have Jamie Lee Curtis portraying Donna, his, you know, um, Carmi's mother. So she's mm-hmm. the matriarch of the family. You have Bob Odenkirk. He's an uncle. Sarah Paulson is like a cousin and they're all just so different from each other, but they come in and I think as actors, they sort of portray the people and the characteristics that we would expect them to just based off of their previous work. What did you think about just seeing all of them pop up here? Yeah, it's also wild because this episode, though the bear is normally known to be a, a very chaotic show, especially when they're in the kitchen, this this season kind of hadn't been like that up until this episode. At least that's what it felt like to me because this episode is K. I mean, there is no chance to breathe in this episode, y'all. Like, when you're watching it, you're like, the dialogue is fast, the camera's cutting places. It is really insane, but it's to simulate Christmas with this family and how crazy it really is over there and how big this family is. And so, when I'm watching the episode, it really, it probably wasn't in what, like 10 minutes in to you, like, is that Bob Odenkirk? I said, wait a second, what's going on here? And then, uh, maybe like a minute, two minutes later, it's Jamie Lee Curtis popping up. And I was like, okay, what are we really doing here? And like you said, Sarah Paulson pops up. And it, it just it was wild to kind of see in 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 again in, in that fast pace for that to happen. Cause I feel like a lot of times when there's a TV show and they cameo somebody, they want you to kind of focus on the cameo sometimes. So it tends to be a slower pace episode or something. But here it was like, nope, fast fast, fast motion. Boom, 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 one after another. So it was kind of crazy to see, but it was also, I think, a reflection of how, like you said, how good the season one of The Bear was. These actors just aren't hopping on this TV show because they were like, because they need to work. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? These are legends. They don't need to be here. It's because they want to be here. And I think they understand and see The Bear as something not only different, but something that they wanted to be a part of, man. So I absolutely loved it. I probably one of my favorite episodes um, of the season so far because of, of the fast pace for sure but also I love it feels like a milestone to me it feels like the bear this episode was like oh no the bear's here the bear's here to be established and now and people need to be talking about it because people do talk about the bear but it's not 
a big skeptical to me is I feel like that it should be sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Because because maybe because it is on ethics. Maybe because uh, the nature of a, of the show it is a cooking show. With again, what originally was smaller actors and actresses on it, but now. This again felt like a milestone. It felt like, oh yeah, the bear is here to stay, and I'm I'm pretty excited uh, to be a fan of the show. Yeah, every like two to three minutes, when somebody new would pop up on screen, I'm like, wait, what the hell? Like, what, Sarah Paulson? What are you doing here, Bob Odenkirk? What are you doing here? Like, what's <laughs> going on here? So it was shocking, and it took me a while to adjust. And I got to admit, I was somewhat. I was somewhat skeptical because once I saw like all the players that were involved, I'm like, well, is this going to distract me for the rest of the episode Mm -hmm. that I'm just like kind of in awe that they were able to assemble, you know, these really talented actors and actresses. But slowly but surely, you you just fall back into what you would expect out of the show, just the character driven dynamics between everybody. And, And ultimately, this episode is so successful for a couple of reasons. One, I think you just dive deeper into establishing this family and just the the chaotic dynamics between them and the damaged nature of a lot of these Mm -hmm. family members. And you see like why people are the way that they are. You can kind of see why Carmi is the way that he is. You can see why, you know, his older brother, you know, eventually was just like in this really dark place Mm -hmm. and and, and how he ended up at the way he ended up with with the opening of season one and the fact that he committed suicide later on. Like you just kind of see like the, the, the seeds that are planted here for a lot of that stuff. And of course, like they were established well before this particular Christmas episode, but we go back enough time where I think you can kind of see just like where everything was, was sort of a turning point really for Carmi and just like what led him down the path that it ultimately led him to. And the second reason is the fact that because it takes place at Christmas, it just subverts all your expectations for what a Christmas episode should be. Like this is <laughs> probably the worst Christmas that a family could have. It's not celebratory. It's not, it's not great. People end off the episode very much upset, pissed at each other. You get this 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 huge conflict that happens by the end of the episode between John Berthall and Bob Odenkirk, and you just expect something to explode, and eventually mm-hmm. it does. And it's like, oh my goodness, like this family is really broken, really damaged, and you got Sarah Paulson off on the side who is like carefree, and she's like, yeah, this is kind of why you need to get away from these motherfuckers because they're mm-hmm. nuts, like they're exactly. crazy. You won't you won't be able to thrive and do well here. And so by the end of it, it's like wow, that was just such an emotionally heavy, intense episode. And that's what The Bear does so successfully. It gives you all of those really emotionally tense episodes that just have your hair standing on the back of your neck because you feel so anxious, you feel so worried about what's going to happen, and you're just like waiting to see, oh, is somebody going to really like just blow up here? And eventually, that's typically what ends up happening. And so I just love that, that they were able to, at least for one episode, kind of lean into that. And there's other moments throughout the season where they start to like play with that idea. But again, like the rest of the season just does an extraordinary job at balancing that tone. They don't always focus on that. Sometimes they do have those slower moments that just breathe and you just watch people talk and you get to know Mm -hmm. each other. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they can play all sides of this well. It's not just a comedy. It's not just like this high stakes, high tension drama. Like they can really tap into so many different genres and tones and styles. That just what makes it, you know, really one one of, I, I think, the best episodes or excuse me, the best TV shows right now on air. So it's definitely an incredible watch for sure. And I would recommend people check it out. But folks, those are all of our thoughts on season two of The Bear. If you've checked out the drama on FX, definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition and talk about our final TV show for this week. The recently premiered HBO original drama, The Idol. You're the American dream. Rags to riches. Trailers to mansions. You are fucking jostling. Just be you. Easy. I'll just do that. 
I'm telling you right now, these people in here are gauging whether or not you still got it. I just wonder about the strippers. They're kind of out her with the flips and the dips and the... You're too distracted. I need to black out all the noise. I'm sorry, who are you? I'll sing. Do you feel this right now? Oh, no, thank you. I think I just fell in love with you. What does that mean he's taken over the house? He's brainwasher. Hmm? <laughs> Not a human being. <laughs> Your star. Never trust a dude with a rat tail. Now, the series is created by Sam Levison and Abel Tesfaye and Riza Fahim, and it's starring Abel Tesfaye, Lily Rose Depp, Susanna Sun, Troy Sivan, and Jane Addams. And so, The Idol, very interesting premise and show here. It was originally announced about two years ago, I believe, back in 2021, that Abel Tesfaye, known to most people across the world as The Weeknd, global pop superstar, artist, musician, was going to create a show for HBO, and he was actually going to be teaming up with not Sam Levinson, but initially it was going to be a partnership between him and Amy Simetz, who was originally sort of the showrunner. And they were developing the show and eventually got to the principal photography stage, but Amy Simons eventually departed the show as the showrunner and director and decided to leave, I believe, over, over creative differences. And recently, before the show premiered on HBO, Rolling Stone had published a very lengthy article about the troubled production of The Idol, basically mm -hmm. detailing why Amy Simons left, why she had disagreements with Abel and other creators of the show. And eventually that led to Sam Levinson entering this show to, to essentially take over. And, and, and much of that report sort of talked about the, chaotic, the chaotic nature of filming, the unpredictability of things, the unfinished scripts. There were just so many moving pieces and moving components. And she ultimately found that the creative direction and where the story and tone were, were gonna head were, were just not to her liking. And, and Abel, on the contrary, felt that the show at that particular time was a little a little bit too focused on Lily Rose Depp's character that it should have been more centered on his character Tedros and so he decided to you know sort of pivot and I think that they just decided to part ways and that that's what led to Sam Levinson coming in here and so I had always been interested in the show just mm -hmm. due to the fact that I really like The Weeknd, I love his music, and so I was interested to see him explore TV and playing a character, and I know he's big into film as well, and so I was interested in checking it out, much less for Sam Levinson, I would say, to be honest, because I'm not necessarily a big fan of his, but he is a very interesting visual director, and so I thought that as a pair, they could have brought something to the table. I got a chance to watch this show. They just premiered the season finale, probably even series finale, we don't know yet, out of a five-episode first season, mm. and I got to just say... Don't like the show. I don't think it's all that great. It's not really something that I found myself enjoying for a couple of key reasons. One, it just felt completely incoherent to me. I don't feel that the show really had much of a purpose in terms of exploring the characters. One thing that, had, that the show had going for it in its rollout and its promotion was sort of the shock nature of it. The, the, the really, um, I guess I would say just the, the salaciousness of the material. The fact that you were exploring this, this predatory figure in Tedros, played by The Weeknd, who was going to basically take over the life of this pop superstar, played by Lily Rose Depp. And so people wanted to sort of see the sexual provocative nature of what that would look like, because he essentially had a cult. He had a cult of artists that would just follow behind him, do whatever he wanted them to do, and to some extent, abuse them mentally, mm -hmm. sometimes physically. 
And so to see that unfold with this character, played by Lily Rose Deb Jocelyn, was somewhat interesting on the premise of it, but then you see the execution of it, and it just kind of felt like that I didn't really understand the motivations of anybody involved. I think Jocelyn as a character played by Lily Rose Depp is like the most interesting of everybody because you do see the star who was at somewhat of a crossroads. She has a team around her who also, similar to Tedros, seem very predatory. They seem like they're taking advantage of her. They seem like they have ulterior motives. And so you're kind of examining like, who's the real monster in the room? Mm -hmm. Is it this guy who's like clearly a pip? Or is it just the team around her who claim to want her best interest, but they actually have their own sort of financial gains and, and things that they're going after? And so that's an interesting idea, but the show never really goes any deeper beyond that. We don't mm -hmm. get to really understand and learn about the characters. The person that we learn about the most is Tedros. We, we learn that he does have a, a very checkered background. He has a nightclub, but he was in prison at one point in time. And so all the stuff that he does isn't that surprising, um, but... I think that just like the material of it and, and just the way that it was executed wasn't all that interesting because you just watch one sequence after another where they're doing really crazy wild shit and it's like, yeah, this is sick and kind of twisted, but we have many options today where we can watch sick and twisted stuff. This isn't, this isn't all that shocking. And so if they mm. were going after like super shocking material, I don't feel that it was all that shocking really because like we just live in a time where sexual content, things on, on, on TV, streaming, wherever, like... We have such easy access to that stuff, and we see like much worse shit in real life oftentimes yeah. where I'm watching the show, and it's like, well, it's not that shocking. And then you kind of go on the other side of it where you examine the music industry and how people just latch on to, to certain figures and just try to suck all the life out of them. And that, that can be an interesting concept, and you can think about like real-life pop stars who've gone through stuff like that, like a Britney Spears. But... Again, when you look at a figurehead like a Britney, you can just like watch her life story and that's infinitely more interesting. You can watch a documentary about the shit that, he sh that she's been through and that's probably going to yield more value out of it than watching mm -hmm. the show because the writing isn't there, the character development isn't there, and, and, and there's not really, I think, much there that, that audiences would, which l would latch on to in terms of just like an emotional story that, that makes you feel something. The one credit that I will give it which is no surprise because it is Sam Levinson, is that visually it is gorgeous. You know, he knows how to visually bring something to life in an interesting way. He's employed all sorts of tactics. He really has kind of carte blanche, I think, with HBO and many other streamers to just, like, do what he wants. Mm -hmm. And he makes things look interesting, and they look gorgeous and beautiful. So the way that it's filmed, the way that, the, that it's shot and edited, all of that stuff is 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 next level. It, 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 it certainly elevates the material. But when you go into the story, it's not really that much there. And I, and I was reading, like, other behind the scenes sort of accounts to this and it makes a lot of sense but i remember one of the stars saying that really only 50 percent of the show was scripted um i believe it was D divine uh, joy randolph who plays like one of the better characters in the show but she said it was like 50 percent scripted the rest of it was just kind of like off the cuff really really improv material and when you watch it you can tell because there are a <laughs> lot of sequences where there's like nobody talking shit's just happening people are dancing or they're naked or they're having sex or they're taking drugs or whatever the fuck is going on oh, yeah. and it's like Okay, so where's the writing? Like, who's actually like, where, where's the story moving along here? Where's mm -hmm. the momentum to, to to keep us progressing? And so I think it becomes painfully obvious that they didn't put the the, the 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 time and attention and care into it to actually make it something coherent. It's really just kind of something to view as a spectacle, really, to see like these people's lives sort of deteriorate before your very eyes. And so those are my thoughts on the idol. I don't know if it'll come back. I don't know if there'll be more episodes, but I do want to ask you, do you intend to watch it? What do you think about just the conversation surrounding it? Cause it has sort of dominated the internet discourse for the past few weeks that has been on the air. You know, if it was longer, I probably wouldn't watch it, but I feel like I can do five episodes just to laugh at it a little bit. Also because 
One, I also like the weekend. So part of me just wants to watch it just to see what Abel has to bring to the table at all. Not only that, but the the funny, the comedy that I hear about the show actually makes me want to watch it regardless of how bad it is. Like, I remember GQ just came out and said it was like, it, it contains one of the worst sex scenes of all time, which a lot of people also agree <laughs> with. <laughs> that is one of the worst sex scenes of all time. Not only that, but uh, uh, when the series premiered, there were people who were not review bombing it, but whatever the opposite is, there were review jumping. I don't know what to call it, but bringing it back to life. Apparently, it was a like two hundred something people on Rotten Tomatoes who was giving it like a hundred percent, and everyone was like, and, and it's funny because all the critics were trying to figure it out, like who is doing this. So apparently, there's like a whole conspiracy behind that too. Um, that's going on. So I do kind of want to watch it. Uh, like you said, Sam Levison is up and down for me. I know visually he's going to give me what I want. Um, because I mean, I think visually he's just a beast. Euphoria <laughs> is a, a, a kind of tells us that same with Malcolm and Marie. I think visually that's doing what it needs to do. And so it's, it's interesting that he re- remains, I think in the same vein of shows. Um, but it sounds like at least Euphoria for the most part, has something to say, right? And it has is, is trying to say something about its characters. It sounds like this is not it at all. <laughs> and it doesn't have anything to say about its characters. So I think I'm, I am going to watch it, but I'm probably having it on, like, the background. You know what I mean? Or I'll pay attention when, like, there is something a little more jarring happening on the screen. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is ridiculous. But it's been called cringe. It's been called boring. It's been called crazy and all these other things. So I will check it out real quick. Again, just because it's five episodes. But other than that, Man, it's 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 sad that it, that Abel had to go out like this. Man, it's, it's sad. Yeah, the the it, that's the perfect way to describe it. That it, it's the perfect show to have on in the background. Like you can do something else, but as a background piece of entertainment, it actually kind of works because it'll grab your attention when you see some wild, crazy shit going down. <laughs> like when you see when you see fucking Tedros like fingering Jocelyn while she's making a track. It's like, oh shit, let me uh let me go ahead and stop what I'm doing real quick what, and watch that Empire? for two minutes. <laughs> Like that, (laughs) not Empire, Um, but yeah, like stuff like that will grab your attention. But uh, yeah, it's not something that you necessarily need to like, I'm going to put my phone down and like really give this the time and attention that it deserves because it's such a great character study. It's not that at all. Luckily for for Abel, um, he's such a global superstar that even if this doesn't get picked up again, even though it did get nailed by the critics, it it won't do anything I think to necessarily hurt his star status. Like he's just such a, a transcendent musical force at this point, and he's established such a fan base that he'll be fine from this. But I think when you look at him and Sam Levison together, and like when I watched the show, it just became very clear to me that this was sort of a vanity project to just really do something that they wanted to do that they thought would be dope. And mm-hmm. HBO didn't really have any rules or regulations for them. So they said, yeah, do whatever you want. We'll just sort of stand out of the way and we'll make it happen, give you the check that you need and just go from there. And so I can I, I can pretty much tell that. You know, it was just two guys who came together and just wanted to tell a story that had a lot of shocking material and, and subject matter, but it won't necessarily resonate beyond that, I think, and, and we'll see if it comes back for a season two or not. We'll have to wait and stand by and see. But folks, those are all of our thoughts on HBO's original series, The Idol. If you've checked out the series, hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition to the news of the week. We got one big item to discuss that I wanted to just sort of hold off and talk about until we had like a proper runway and a pro- proper amount of time to talk about, but... Mm-hmm. There was a recent report published by Vulture about the brutal working conditions of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. We, of course, reviewed the movie and talked about it in detail a few weeks ago. And 
I think it's no surprise that it's become pretty much our favorite movie of the year thus far. And we just marveled, no pun intended, at the extraordinary nature of how it was brought to life and just everything that was behind the making of the movie and just the sheer ambition. Well, it seems that that certainly came at a cost because this article, which is pretty scathing and pretty extensive by Vulture, details just the brutal working conditions that many of the animators had to go through in order to see that this project crossed the finish line. And really the big headline is that more than 100 artists involved in the movie ended up leaving the project before it was even finished because they were just fed up and they couldn't take it. And I think just due to the deterioration of their mental health and their physical health, they decided to walk away. And this article goes even deeper and actually has four people who worked on the movie sort of talking anonymously about their experience and what they dealt with. And so I have a few quotes and just like a few high level notes that I want to just briefly detail here before we talk about this. But these four writers um, or excuse me, four crew members who spoke to Vulture say that they were asked to make all alterations to already improved animated sequences that created this backlog of work across multiple late stage departments, really just impacting the entire development of the film. The four crew members say that animators who were hired in the spring of 2021, so that's about a full two years before the movie came out, sat idly for anywhere between six months to three months, three to six months that particular year while Phil Lord, who's a producer on the movie, tinkered with the film in the layout stage when the first 3D representation of storyboards are created, which is pretty pretty unusual for animated movies it's pretty unusual for renders renders to be tinkered with at that at that late stage of development typically a lot of the feedback that's given is given a lot earlier so that they don't have to comp create complete renders of sequences because that's just a tremendous amount of work and time and money that has to go into that and so as a result these four individuals say that they were pushed to work more than 11 hours a day seven days a week for more than a year to make up for time lost and they were forced back to the drawing board as many as five times to revise their work during the final rendering stage. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. 11 hours a day, seven days a week for more than a year. Mm -mm. The typical work week is 40 hours. I'm out. Now we're talking about 77 hours with no days off for more than a year. That just sounds completely, just completely nonsensical and brutal just to, a, to an extent I can't even comprehend. Um, I, I want to read a quote here from one of the people who talked to Vulture. He says, quote, over 100 people left the project because they couldn't take it anymore. But a lot stayed on just so that their work could survive until the end, because if it gets changed, it's no longer yours. I know people who were on the project for over a year who left, and now they have little to show for it because everything was changed. They went through the hell of production and then got none of their work coming out on the other side. His pseudonym that he used in the article was named Steven, but again, they're mostly um, presenting themselves as anonymous, as anonymous people who worked on the crew. And also, this Vulture article did go to the lengths of getting some responses and reactions to people involved with the movie from the producerial side, from the studio side, Sony Animation in particular. And Amy Pascal, who is a producer on not only the live action movies, but also on these movies, she produced both Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse, did have a response. She says, quote, one of the things about animation that makes it such a wonderful thing to work on is that you get to keep going until the story is right. If the story isn't right, you have to keep going until it is. To the workers who felt demoralized by having to revise final renders five times in a row, I guess welcome to making a movie, end quote. So uh, Amy Pascal, they're going pretty much full heel on this whole story and basically <laughs> saying, like, it is what it is. Like, get over it. This is how we make movies. But with all of that said, man, what, what do you think about this? The article even goes on to talk about 
Phil Lord and how his mm-hmm. decision and his power superseded that of the directors. There were three directors attached to this movie and the fact that yep. Phil Lord pretty much had final say on every single sequence. And I think a, a Sony executive actually disputed that, that his management style did not actually supersede what the directors would say. But w- what does this, this say to you? How do you feel about this? Because this also... Is it the first time we hear about things like this? Vulture published an article last year Mm -hmm. about the VFX industry and how the MCU over at Marvel and Disney was creating a culture of churn and crunch. And there were just like really unpleasant working conditions on a lot of those projects. So we're just seeing a trend here that a lot of these these big budget tentpole superhero blockbusters are creating really, really terrible working conditions. Is it worth it? What do you think about this? What does this mean for Beyond the Spider-Verse? assumingly coming out next year which just seems very unlikely at this point now i mean what's your reaction to hearing all this i think the most interesting thing and one of the most interesting quotes out of the whole thing was it was never the 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 art or the 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 actual uh they didn't have a lot of visual effects problems or renderings when it came down to it the real problem that they were saying was phil lord kept changing the style or not the style, but the story. Phil Lord did not know what he wanted to do with the story. And I think that's a that's such a weird way to work. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine you have a you have a story, but Phil Phil Lord can't conceptualize how it's gonna work out. You know? He has to see it in order to say, We're doing this or we're not doing this. You're telling me that you force people to render parts of the story to render whole sequences scenes and you don't even know if that's the final scene or you don't even know that that's what you want it to look like man and and what it what it sounded like is that's a normal thing though is that this happens mm. all the time and that that is how one that's how phil lord works and what what's also interesting about this is it sounds like this has always been his the way phil lord has worked mitchell versus the machines it sounds like this is how it, he's always worked whether it's um, 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 into the Spider-Verse. Shoot, it sounds like this has always his work. He has to see multiple renderings before he figure, figures out what the story is. And so it's weird, right? Because Amy Pascal's argument is that that is how animation works. You have to see the animation to say, oh, that works for the story or that doesn't work for the story. But how often have we seen a movie in real life get shot before the story is complete, before the script is done? You know what I'm saying? We always... In fact, that's one of the first things we hear is up. Oh, the script is done. We just talked about James Gunn is done writing Superman. He's not going to shoot 75 percent of Superman and be like, man, I don't like that story beat. Let me go scrap everything and let's shoot it again. That's just not how it works. And that's not. Uh, in fact, you, you kind of got to you got to ride your horse after that. You got to <laughs> you got to you know what I mean? You got to take take whatever it is at that point and so i it's interesting though because i can see that being a beneficial uh beneficial for animation being able to take it back but now to me it sounds like after all that said and done it sounds like a time problem if you're gonna do that if you're gonna work like that phil lord amy pascal it sounds like you need you just need more time because you can't you can't be putting these people through these working conditions, these 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 uh, uh, the workers, the visual effects workers through all these terrible conditions. And you don't know or uh, and you got people leaving 77 hours a week is nuts, especially seven days a week. 
sometimes I understand a work day being 10 to 12. People do that all the time, right? Nurses, all kind of other people. But seven days a week is insane. At least a day or t- at least two days off if you're going to work them. You know, like <laughs> for over we, a year we, at that. Are we, are like, we in, just are, uninterrupted year? Are we in sweatshops? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> like, why are we like this? And in, in a, I think what they don't also don't understand is that in order for a film uh, uh, f- to have good reception, I think the people are willing to be patient. Especially uh, another point they make in the article was there's there's definitely added pressure to making a sequel to a, a Academy Award winning movie like Into the Spider-Verse. We're willing to wait, you know, even me and you talked about it after we're like, there's no way Beyond the Spider-Verse is coming out next year, right? But we also added to that, we're willing to wait. You know what I'm saying? We're willing to take the time to get a, a worthwhile product and to get a, something that's good versus one, having a bad movie, yes, first and foremost, but two, putting workers under terrible conditions that create all of this. You know what I'm saying? And so it's interesting because I think it feels like uh, it feels like everybody is right here in, in a way, if that makes sense. It feels like, okay, Phil Lord, one, okay, one, Phil Lord is kind of tripping. Like, just fit, figure out the story first. <laughs> Let people render based off the story. Don't be changing it in the in-between. But I do also feel like that probably is how it's being. That probably is a benefit of animation is that you don't have to go back into the field <laughs> with all the cameras and crew people and do all this other stuff. You know what I'm saying? That probably is a benefit. And so I, I think there's a lot of mixed bags and in, in ideas happening here. But overall, to me, reading the article through and through, it just sounds like, one, you need more time. And Phil Lord kind of needs to get his life together <laughs> when it comes to deciding what the script is going to be. That seems like the conclusion and the action items to me is give people don't. Don't act like don't put people through these workshop, uh, yeah, workshop conditions, sweatshop conditions, and get the story right, man. And I feel like a lot of this will succeed because uh, I feel like that's part of the we talked about with Marvel. I feel like Marvel the issue they just don't have time. We we talk about they work to the day that it needs to come out. Stop it. <laughs> Everybody, slow down. Give people the right conditions. We are willing to wait as long as it is good. And it's like it almost feels like. They don't understand that point of view, but hey, I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I, at this point, after reading it, I don't even know if time is the issue. It's how the time is utilized, and it's not utilized efficiently because they say True. that artists are just sitting by for three to six to eight months with nothing happening, and they're getting paid. They're getting paid for nothing essentially because Phil Lord by their account is holding up the process of actually deciding on directions for certain sequences so that they can get to work and actually bring it to life. And that's, that's a huge problem because Mm -hmm. why hire these artists and pay them to do nothing for so long? And then they also have to deal with the fact that they know that a fucking avalanche is going to come because they know that as the time ticks away, as the Mm -hmm. days go by, this mountain of work is just going to stack on top of each other, which creates the 77 hour works week work week with with no days off. And that's just it's ridiculous. And it doesn't need to be like that if you actually effectively plan ahead and make decisions and be decisive about where you want things to go. And so it just creates this really huge backlog and bottleneck of a process that 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 can't really be controlled and contained and now even though you've pushed the movie back you just have to force yourself to meet these deadlines and you know to the to the real conundrum of what one of the one of the people noted in the article mm-hmm. you either leave because you can't take it anymore and suffer the consequences of not being credited for your work which fucking sucks yeah. or you stay on and just deal with the brutal nature of it all 
hope to see the finish line, hope that you don't fucking do something crazy to yourself just to see your name up on that screen. Yeah. That's a terrible thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they lost over 100 people, that is not a small number. That's mm-hmm. a lot of people. Yeah. Like, yeah, they said over a thousand animators worked on this movie. You lost 10% of your workforce because they decided like, this shit isn't worth it anymore. I can't do it. This is crazy. That is a huge, huge, huge problem. And it should be rectified. And... I think that it ultimately means that that damn Beyond the Spider-Verse, there's no way it's coming out in March of 2024. And if this is actually true, if this turns out to be the case, which I would believe it is because why else would 100 people leave, then fuck that release date. Push the movie back two more years for all I care because I don't think that these working conditions are worth what we get. Like, yes, Across the Spider-Verse is a fucking spectacular movie. And it might be fucked up to say, but it largely just might be due to the reason that people were under probably the most high tense and high pressured situation of their lives. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it, it provided us just excellent, phenomenal, maybe even transcendent work. But is that truly worth it? I don't think so. I think you can still get to that finish line. I still think you can get to that place by not making your people suffer, by not making the people that work on your product actually have to go through hell and back Agreed. just to arrive at something that's going to be considered classic material or be transcendent or, or, or whatever it is you're going after. And this is supposed to be the last installment. So I think that you got to take the time that, that that's necessary to get to the place. But even more so than that, Phil Lord has to change his behavior in get terms of how he manages his process. Get like, because we we can say push it back, but what's to prevent them from having these animators on ice for another year, not doing anything until ultimately they decide, like, well, yeah, now we got eighteen months, and so y'all have to fucking crunch this movie and get it out in the time frame that I want to get it out in because I just decided on the direction, and <laughs> I'm probably gonna revise this shit three, four, five, six more times anyway. So just get over it, get used to it. It's a crazy place to be in, and, and it makes a lot of sense, too, because I remember when the movie came out, you might have saw some of this, too, like on film Twitter, there were a lot of animators who were coming out tweeting, finally being able to talk about their experience, like, basically within the subtext, like, man, this was hard, I went through a lot to make this happen, but I'm glad it's here, like, you could just kind of tell and read through their, through their emotional subtext that this was a really difficult process to work on this movie, and I just hope that the industry as a whole can just slow down with these things and really consider all the effects that they have on their workers because uh without these people behind the scenes man we don't have this we don't get any of this great this great artwork at all so they have to really take care of these people and i hope that they do but folks with all of that said that's all we have for this episode of two black nerds thank you again for tuning into another podcast we will of course be back later this week because we will be reviewing and recapping episode three of the marvel studios original series secret invasion we'll be back to break down all the big events and details that come out of that episode and we'll of course be back next week to review and discuss anything that comes out over the course of the coming week so definitely plenty to look forward to but until then we will see y'all next time yes sir we are audi 5000 and happy 4th of July, question mark? Do, see, do black people even like 4th of July anymore? I don't even know, man. Whatever. Oh, no. Happy happy day off of work. Whatever that means. Please, check out our Two Black Jedi and Two Black Sith collection at twoblacknerds.com. And remember, always bet on black. Appreciate y'all. Love y'all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Two Black Nerds, where we're too black, too nerdy, and we out, y'all. Peace. Hey, I put them diamonds in my teeth. Might put some diamonds in my nose. Ayy, we killed the op, we got low. Ayy.